welcome to the Scottish Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host Chris, and here we're delving into the multitude of stranger companies that happen in Scotland and beyond. You can contact us with your own accounts at the Scottish Paranormal Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all social media channels and you can contact us by either means. Tonight's episode, we have Gary Heseltine on the show. Gary's a long-time UFO researcher, an author, a speaker, and fully committed to getting the subject out there into the mainstream. So we'd just like to welcome Gary into the show, and we'll go there. I'd just like to welcome you onto the show. Um, I've done a bit of an intro beforehand, so um, we'll, we'll kind of delve into it. So thanks for coming on, and, and thanks for everything you're doing for the subject as well. Um, you. I know you you're, you're chip away at it as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, try to make a good dent in it so yeah so thanks very much for obviously your time and uh, coming on tonight as well so you're welcome so how's things down your end tonight how's the weather just as bad as up here i imagine uh cold and miserable oh it's not that cold but it, it's uh cloudy with some rain it's not very sunny today um we've had one or two nice days recently but not today cloudy just kind of counting the days down to get that um the spring to actually appear Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I had, a, I had a bit of a glimpse of it a couple of days ago, and uh, it was beautiful. It was a lovely spell for about an hour. Sat outside, suddenly your face, you can't beat it, having a cup of tea. Yeah. Was that was that Saturday morning? <laughs> uh, no, this would be Sunday morning. No, Sunday morning of, in Yorkshire. Yeah, we got it on Saturday morning for um, the space of probably about half an hour at the kids' football, and it kind of disappeared. But it's been pretty grim. But hopefully it changes and be positive and get a bit better weather coming in, so... I would think we're over the weather now, to be honest, but yeah, let's, so let's hope so. It just let's needs hope. to dry out now, that's all. We need the grass to dry out, and <laughs> it's rained up here for days. So so where are you based, then? So I'm based straight in the middle of Scotland, so if you can imagine Edinburgh and Glasgow, yeah. I'm pretty much equidistant uh, to the two of them. I'm a, a town, just it's a town called Unlithgow. So Okay. Okay. Bang in the middle. Um, I think you've had a lot more rain, and I think you had a fair bit more snow than us as well. Yeah, well, the snow, the snow never it only came for like a few days and disappeared. Um, but it's rained, it's rained a lot, like it has rained, especially just in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of flooding and stuff like that. But it's hopefully it dries out soon, and then we can get back outside again. So, uh, yeah, can't be outside. I'll be, I'll be on holiday soon, so I'll, I'll get you. Your, your, your book's going to be on holiday with me. So All right, few, that's a, a good few, advert. I like that advert. I like I'll get that. a few pictures for the sun with it, all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th- I mean, that that one, if you've seen it online from Hawaii. I did, I, I did see it. it. I, I thought you couldn't get a better poster if you wanted it. It was, ah, that was good. Picture. The thing is, is, is you, you actually didn't see the book until the last bit because the whole picture draws your eye to what you're looking yeah. at. You see yeah, the yeah. Yeah, so uh, good picture. But yeah, yeah, as I kind of thought, because as I said to you in the chat before, um, a lot, a lot of some of the books behind me now, they're all like they're ancient. I mean, I've got a lot more, but they're all kind of you, you've probably got the same. Um, but they're um, a lot of my books these days are all audio books. I drive yeah. a bit, I drive my job and stuff like that, not all the time, but I do a bit of driving, so I tend to kind of listen to the odd podcast or the, the book and whatever else or walking a dog with the book so it's easier so that's what I'm saying to you so um, I'll need to get the glasses on and start reading but, um, well well, I think one or two people have said would I go down the audio book route but I don't really know much about the audio book side so I'll, I'll look into it in time yeah definitely worth it no, I mean I've my wife got me into it and I've uh, constantly I mean I get a book a month out of it and I'll, I'll, I'll go through a book in about two weeks Okay. Just with walking a dog and stuff. I mean, so you do. It's, it's really, really worthwhile. 
Because um, usually if I'm reading normally, you, you kind of read at night when you go to your bed and stuff like that, or when you get a chance to kind of sit down, but it's things where you can be walking the dog and just listen to a book, things like yeah. that. So it's, it's yeah, pretty fair good. enough. Fair yeah, enough. so yeah, food for thought anyway. Right, so listen, we'll not for the kind of small talk and we'll kind of get into, it, into the crux here. Uh, so yeah. obviously you've been in the subject for a good number of years. I know a wee bit about history about you as well. So, but I'd like to obviously, if you want to, can you go through how it started for you to start off with and just kind of run through maybe chronologically how you got from early age to here, if you can okay. cram that into a small space of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be easy. No, um, I had a sixteen. Uh, I, I had a sighting when I was sixteen that effectively changed the course of my life, but not initially. Uh, the sighting was with my then girlfriend in my hometown of Scunthorpe in Lincolnshire. Uh, and cutting a long story short, I and my then girlfriend saw bright white light, no distinct shape, and it seemed to trigger a number of power grid failures. I moved to a second geographical spot because I had my bike with me and went, took a shortcut and got ahead of the light. And when it happened a second or third time, that's when I realized the light had had some kind of interaction because how could I predict a power cut? That fired my interest. I had none prior to it. Uh, then uh, I've joined a local group briefly, went to a couple of meetings, but that didn't do a lot for me. I joined BU4, the British U4 Research Association, as an associate member, but didn't do anything really other than get a, a picture um, badge, as it were, a membership badge. Yeah. Uh, I then uh, kind of went away and had a life. I had a couple of kids, joined the Air Force, uh, spent six years in the Air Force, came out of the Air Force at 29, uh, joined the British Transport Police at 29, that went on to have a 24-year career. Uh, retiring at the age of 53 in 2013 when I created the UFO Truth magazine because by then I'd been in the public domain since uh, January 2002 when I launched the Proof Force Police Database, which was a, a website for UK police officers who'd uh, seen UFOs, collated information, new sightings, etc. That's how I became known within the subject. So I'm now into my 21st 20, yeah, 21st year of uh, being a uh, public researcher. Um, strong interest in the Rendlesham Forest case uh, because when I was in the Royal Air Force Police, I guarded tactical nuclear weapons on two nuclear weapons storage areas, mm -hmm. one at RAF Honington in Suffolk, uh, not a million miles away from no. the Rendlesham event, uh, and then also in what was then West Germany at RAF Larbrook, which was near the Dutch border. Uh, at the southern end of G Germany. Uh, so I kind of know what, what they did and how to protect nuclear weapons, etc. So I'd like a unique insight, and I thought there must be more witnesses. And uh, December 2007, I went public with my research into Rendlesham when I met Colonel Holt for the first time for part uh, as part of uh, a program, uh, a UFO hunters program with Bill Burns, they did one on uh, Rendlesham Forest, and uh, I said, look, I think there's more witnesses, and, and Colonel Holt told me there were more witnesses, and I filmed him on top of the tower privately, and he said that the, the guy in the tower had told him the beams had gone into the weapon storage area, unequivocal, and then he also said that there were the people walking on the ground, security policemen on the ground, who also saw the beams too, so it was like at least another three witnesses there. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
so that's really how I became involved. And then uh, basically I've just been doing more and more work. And then five years ago, I began to do a reinvestigation of the Reynolds and Forest case in its entirety. I thought I knew it pretty well um, and probably did as compared with most people. But uh, when I actually delved deeper into the case, there was a lot of historical information I wasn't aware of, old interviews, etc., that are all in the book, etc. And And there was information that I thought has never been told in a documentary, but is pertinent to the case and should be in the public domain. So I then, um, as I said, commenced a five-year research uh, because if I was going to do it, I wanted to get it as good as I could do it. Uh, and I based it on not sentiment, just the facts told through the eyes of an experienced detective. I'd been a detective for 19 years and an advanced interviewer of suspects and witnesses. I was able, using that experience, to elicit uh, more information from people who'd already been interviewed from military witnesses and that features heavily in the book and there's also some new information new witness testimony from a guy called James Stewart uh, that's in the book um, and so putting all that together uh, about three years ago I realized that I had so much information it was never going to all fit in a, any kind of TV documentary which mm -hmm. I've been working on uh, just too much detail. So it was my then wife who suggested that, uh, why don't you write a book? And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, actually it caters for all the information I've found and allows me to go into much more detail. So basically that's what I've done. And, and Non-Human is my first book. Obviously I've been the editor of UFO Truth magazine, which is a, a bi-monthly easy, 96 page bi-monthly easy. Um, but like a lot of people, a lot of people like to hold a physical book or a physical magazine. Well, there aren't any printed magazines anymore in the yeah. UK. So when I decided to go down the book route, I wanted something for me as an author to hold. And uh, and so there's the book behind you. And, uh, and and so far, so good. And I'm just gently building up the, uh, the, uh, the publicity for it. Uh, I'm garnering... Uh, lots of reviews from professional researchers and so far the response from them has been excellent so uh, i've still got a few more that i'm waiting on so as more and more comes in i'll i'll ratchet up the publicity but obviously you've invited me on the show and i'm very grateful for you doing it no thanks for coming on and it's a, a good meaty book it's like just under 500 pages with a hell of a lot of information in it um, as I say, it's, it's come with me uh, in France soon, so I'll, I'll delve right into it and I'll, I'll give you a good bit of feedback on it. Um, well, and get the feed, pictures in there as well. <laughs> uh, feedback is always welcome, uh, as long as it's constructive, uh, which is fine. Um, you make of it what you want, but I think there's a lot of new information, a lot of old information in the sense of old interviews going back to the 80s and 90s that people aren't aware of where I think some significant things have been said uh, and effectively been lost to history or to time. And I think they should be uh, in the public domain and people be talking about them. One thing about Wendelson that it did always stick in my mind, um, where initially when it came out, I, I think when I was younger, I think initially the first time I'd probably, it, it, it jarred with me, it was probably... I, mean, I don't think it was the papers or anything like that, probably when it came out strange but true back in the day. And um, 
And then from there, it was on multiple documentaries. And but every time there was a new documentary coming out, there was another wee bit of information coming out, or um, there was just a, a, a lot of kind of add-ins to it um, all the way along, where you knew there was a hell of a lot more to the story than what was getting told um, initially, which came out initially. But um, ah, it's, it's a total interesting uh, story. You know what I mean? But so in regards to before we kind of kind of delve into the book and that, going back through your history and stuff, wait, when you started the, the National Database for the, the police accounts, was there any reasoning behind that? Did you did you feel that you were uh, you had colleagues that were, were, were having quite a lot of accounts or you had accounts yourself and, and you thought there was there was mileage in that to, to try and get a database for it? Um, it's not something that I intended to do, uh, but when people get into UFO research and if they've often had a, a profound experience in themselves, and I've talked to many others who have similar stories to mine, uh, that when they get into it, it kind of gets, uh, it hooks into you. And it sometimes can take a long time. Well, in my case, before I became a researcher, it was I was just 42 when, when I became a public researcher. That's, that's pretty old. Uh, especially when I had a sighting at 16. Um, but there was a route of events that took place to that. And what happened was when I went away and had a life, a couple of kids, joined the Air Force, joined the police, I'd still have got an interest and I read books and whatever, but I didn't really follow it. Um, and then I would say in the late 1990s, about 97, 96, 97, I came across uh, a printed glossy magazine, Air Force printed glossy magazine called U4 Magazine, uh, which was run by uh, Quest Publications under the late great Graham Birdsell. Yeah. And uh, a strange thing kind of have happened in the sense of there's a word that I'd never been familiar with until I got into this subject, and it's the word synchronicity. And a lot of people told me there's too many coincidences that lead you on a path. And at first I was kind of sceptical, but when this kind of happened to me, you, over a period of time you have that many coincidences, you think there is something to it. Uh, and, for example, when I, I worked primarily... Uh, in my later career in the transport police out of Leeds, big city, fifth biggest city, I think, in the UK. And uh, I was a detective, so I had the freedom to roam about in a police car, unmarked police car, just doing my inquiries. And when I came across this magazine, uh, which I hadn't been aware of, I it kind of reawakened my interest in the subject. And I went, wow, this, this is great. I'd, I'd never seen a glossy magazine in the UK before. Looked really professional. It was kind of evidential, told from an evidential way, it wasn't sensationalistic. And when I looked at where it was printed, it was only printed 11 miles away from me uh, in a place then called Yeadon. Mm. It was a famous lead, Bradford Airport, Yeadon Airport. And uh, if you think about it, that could ma magazine could have been printed out of Edinburgh out of you know um orkney islands or anywhere london but here it was the editor was just 11 miles away so essentially what i did was i, I approached him and said look i've had this idea for uh, i'm cutting a lot out but uh, i've had this idea for a, a police database i want to go public will you help me will you allow me to write an article and because he found out obviously that i was a police detective and still serving 
he thought that was good from a credibility point of view. Yeah. So, so he he kind of uh, uh, encouraged me to to write the article, and so I went public in January of two thousand and two, uh, and did my first ever article for any magazine in that that issue of UFO magazine, and that's what uh, announced me to the world or as it, as it were, uh, it attracted quite a lot of media interest because I was a serving police detective. And uh, one of the things that I never envisaged from that was being asked to go to groups uh, around the country and do talks, lectures about the police cases. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know why I'd never thought it through, but I didn't. Uh, but then when I was asked, and there were far more groups then, in the early 2020s than there are now mm -hmm. in terms of groups that you can go and have talks and whatever uh i was regularly doing talks to 50 well, 150 200 people around the country and uh, i'd never lectured before but found it was something that actually came very easily to me and most people most of my colleagues would run a mile rather than stand in front of a camera or in front of a big audience and speak. Yeah. But for me, it was something that seemed to be fairly natural. And and as you can see, I'm not exactly short in coming forward. So uh, it, it was just something that I found that I could do. And, and as time went on, um, life changed uh, in an upward gear in 2010 when Steve Bassett gave me the... Uh, the Disclosure Award, the PRG Disclosure Award in Washington, D.C., in a very glitzy event at the National Press Club um, in 2010. And from then on, I've done international lectures all around the world. I've, I've now gone to, I think, 22 countries. And so I, I consider myself very, very lucky to have been on this journey doing something which I'm passionate about, which I love, and seems to take me on a strange journey. So I'm very lucky. To do what I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, on for on for that when you um, the vice president is still a ISA. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, ISA was uh, created um, in I think 2020, uh, but essentially it, it it came from what turned out to be a failed disclosure approach by what was then a Chinese UFO group who mm -hmm. approached uh, people like Roberto Panotti and Don Schmidt. Uh, to create a coalition of countries, and it was it was obviously aimed at being some kind of disclosure movement. Well, that petered out, uh, and because we'd already done a lot of talking privately in emails, I said it'd be, it'd be a shame to let all this good cooperation and goodwill go. So mm -hmm. I took out a Zoom Pro account uh, and then started inviting people online and we set about this process of bringing everybody together. And in uh, May 2021, we went public as an internationally registered non-government organization, NGO, not-for-profit um, and non-political. And it now has international representatives in 30 countries. So it's a global approach, which it should be because the UFO, UAP phenomenon is global in nature and that's going from strength to strength and if you're not aware and i can't go into too much detail suffice to say that uh, we have a, a project called project titan uh, on the go at the moment and that has been uh, accepted by the, the tiny principality of san marino mm -hmm. 
and they are now going to approach the United Nations uh, about the UAP UFO issue. And so behind closed doors, there's quite a lot of high level discussions going on about that because it will be the first time any country has brought the UFO subject to the United Nations since 1978 and the Grenada Initiative with uh, Eric Gehry, Sir Eric Gehry. Uh, uh, so this is kind of momentous times, and I think with all the the changes in legislation or the new legislation that's been passed in the United States, we're, we're far closer now to a disclosure than I've ever been in my entire life, because uh, I, I don't see as you can put the genie back in the bottle like they did in the 60s and yeah, 70s. Done it multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I think that I think now with the internet and uh, the, the way things can go viral very quickly in live streaming, uh, if there's an event. I mean, if you imagine the Phoenix Lights 1997, that was captured on a few uh, videos, but the quality yeah. wasn't very good. And the, the authorities, despite tens of thousands of people witnessing it, the authorities managed to get away with it. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't definitive. Whereas if you had that incident now with the uh, smartphones that you've got now and 4K cameras, 8K cameras, that incident, if it was replayed tomorrow, would then be live streamed on social media. And once people realized that there was an ongoing mass event going on, uh, it would go viral within minutes. And you couldn't, the authorities couldn't contain that. And I think that that's actually an area where the current discussions don't actually talk about this possibility because whilst there's now a lot of scientists uh, willing to come forward, like Avi Loeb and people like that, uh, and that NASA are doing their own UFO, UAP project, nobody's really talking about the fact that this could change tomorrow with a mass sighting event like the Phoenix Lights because the technology has changed uh, and they couldn't contain it. So I, I think that actually that aspect needs to be discussed more because it could happen tomorrow. Yeah. We really don't know. And if the, if the authorities are so unprepared as they seem to be, then I think they need to prepare better because they need to think about this. Yeah. I mean, on that note with the mass sighting thing, um, so well, maybe not even the mass sighting, but let's say, for example, you always hear a, that cliche um, phrase that people say about a UFO landing on the White House lawn. I mean, but in this day and age as well, with the things we are, if so, if some type of event like that happened, you would probably get half the world not believing it. So, some type of event like that would need to be something so profound that that it would be believable across the world, and not just. I mean, you know what I mean but, with that? Yeah, yeah. But I, I think, I think if you do think of the Phoenix Lights, uh, and that was described as an object boomerang shaped a mile yeah. wide, from tip to tip. Uh, and that was seen uh, silhouetted and blacking out the sky of stars because of its size. It was also seen by the, uh, the the governor, but he didn't admit it at the time and went public with it 10 years later and said he saw it too, but by then it was too late. But I think there was a, probably a lot of pressure put on the governor to, to play a joke on yeah, it. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows what went on behind the scenes, but it was an unfortunate end because... It was such a good sighting, but I think the technology wasn't quite there. Whereas now, I think we're live streaming. Everybody would start live streaming, and uh, and I think somebody would get some excellent footage. And once people realise that it's not some kind of just mass joke or yeah, yeah. Uh, an event, 
but I think when everybody starts filming it, um, then then you'd soon you'd soon realise that this was a real ongoing live event, and we haven't had that uh, ability to do that independently of state-run TV. Yeah. So so it, I think it would be a game changer, and it, it, the the authorities certainly, in my opinion, wouldn't be able to contain it. And it, you know we'd be then looking at an event that probably lasted then then lasted I think it it, it was seen over a two hundred mile distance so you know all of that could be live streamed for an hour two hours or whatever how long it took yeah and I, and I think that's when you're really into a different this is where it's going to be on the six o'clock news because everybody will be watching it including media will tune into it including reporters who live in the areas where it's seen you know they'll put the live streaming on as well and yeah i'm looking at this thing too this is real yeah uh, so i think when we do that we're then into a potentially very different world because it would then go from in a sense the human race dominating the issue and leading it this would be an event driven agenda by someone else uh, which is a whole new ball game does it does it frustrate you that um the uk's can you start well, UK government standpoint on it and compared to I know in the American government you have got a bit of tune and fro where there's it's coming out, no coming out, there's a, there's a bit of kickback in there, right? So you've got obviously the legislation's been people can report now and then you've got the, the whistleblower amendment which is is going to kick into touch probably this year in regards to if there's any hearings or that. But so you can see that process happen. You've got more people coming out of the woodwork, like you've got Jay Stratton, it's recently came out as well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. all these people who have been in the, the, the projects and stuff like that. And there's a lot of other stuff behind the scenes we don't know about. There's a lot of thing with the, the programme we don't know about. But in regards to that, I mean, does it frustrate you that the, the UK government is, is more or less kind of silent in all this? Um, Absolutely. It's, it's a disgrace, really. Um, because when we talk about the book and the Rendlesham Forest incident, you know, we're talking about dozens and dozens of US military personnel, as well as uh, civilians that lived in an air, in the air, around the area, uh, being involved. We're talking about at least five who were given very harsh interrogations to the point of being threatened with their life. You've got some that have been given injections through serum, you know, frightened, silly, uh, and th there's no excuse for that. And you've got Others that have been in close proximity to UFOs with, in a sense, confirmed health issues attributed to their involvement in this case. Now, they will always say in the UK that there's been no case of def defence significance. Well, it's always been a ridiculous thing because this was a nuclear strike base, the top strike base in the event of Soviet aggression. Uh, you know, how can anything, whatever it was, uh, that was seen in the forest. We're not talking one or two incidents. In the book, I break it down into now 17 different sighting events at different times because uh, I look at it through the eyes of a detective and they're all separate events. Maybe some are linked on the same night, but they are separate events, different times and different personnel involved. So 17 different sighting events over what we now think is a three or I believe now a three to four day period because there's new testimony in there uh, by Sergeant Adrian Bustinza that says that his event with Larry Warren, um, and Larry Warren, a uh, second landing took place on a different night to the night that everybody associates him with, which is the Holt night. He said he had two nights of activity and it was on the second night that he was involved with a second landing 
and that Warren and, and Bustinza were, were security police officers surrounding this second object, that it was being filmed. Yeah, that always intrigued me, that. Well, the, the, the Sergeant Adrian Bustinza is a very critical figure who was very, very traumatised by what happened to him, as others were, but he was particularly traumatised. And whilst he has made a number of kind of like online comments to various people over the years, he'd never really done a, a proper interview. And I, I was fortunate enough to end up having a four and a half hour transatlantic telephone call with him. And uh, he, what he said was amazing. And we were talked about many things. And uh, he, he talked of that second event. And I was totally unaware that this was a different night. And he just said, no, that's another night. What, another night of UFO activity that you were involved in? Yes. Mm -hmm. And involved in that, there were security police surrounding a, a, a second landed object uh, that Colonel Williams was there, the base commander of 12,000 personnel, and that it was being filmed. Mm -hmm. And we also, we, we kind of knew that that story had been told because Larry Warren, the original military whistleblower, had said that. But now Bustinza was corroborating that. Yeah, and he said it was being filmed. And, and then we also had the corroboration of the film from Captain Mike Verano, who said, whilst he's, he went on camera in silhouette for the uh, CNN show in 1995, mm -hmm. CNN special, uh, 85, uh, and it was a really good documentary and there were lots of military personnel uh, in silhouette. He was, uh, he was captain and he said that he drove the base commander out to a waiting fighter and he said, what's in the, the bag, the security bag? And he says, film. But, and he says, motion picture film of the UFO. And, and actually, in the book, I come across an admission, incredible admission made by Colonel Holt, that he's never admitted ever since. But he, he, he said to a MUFON researcher in uh, April of, of 1985, uh, when the researcher asked him about, was the Colonel Williams there? Was it being filmed? And he said, I can verify all of that for the senator. And he was talking about Senator James Exxon, the Nebraska senator at the time. And it's a chapter in the book, it's a standalone chapter. And that was an amazing admission because uh, the, the, the researcher was a guy called, a MUFON researcher called Ray Boucher. And he had telephoned Holt. He told him who he was, what he was researching, that he'd talked to several people, including Larry Warren, uh, Adrian Bustins already, and that, he was more or less laying out the story that he'd gleaned so far, which was a second landing. Colonel Williams was there. It was being filmed on motion picture footage. And that's what he was referring to. Yes, I can verify all of that for the sense. And, and it was verbatim. And it was written in Ray Boucher's notes verbatim. Mm -hmm. And Ray Boucher is very thorough. And I got a copy of all his research notes. And there it is. And it like hits you in the face. This is an admission that akin to I murdered somebody. Yeah. That's how good it is. And yet nobody knows about this admission, apart from the smallest number of people who were around at that time, because Ray Boucher put all that. And there are anecdotal references into the, some of the books that Nick Pope has written, uh, 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 Jim Pennison has written, but they're anecdotal and they're not told in the context. But when you see the letters that Ray Boucher wrote to the senator, where he lays out everything in that context. And he says, and Holt told me that you were present, that Colonel Williams was present, the base commander, that it was being filmed on motion picture footage. Yeah. But then 
anybody over a certain age will realize that motion picture footage means moving images yep. like we are now. It's not still photography, it's still photos. It's moving the film. The old kind of like going back to CinemaScope and that kind of thing. It's the old term, yes. motion picture footage. So that footage did exist. I have absolutely no doubt that it did exist. Probably still does, but we're not likely never to see it. But it existed, and I believe that account of a second landing absolutely implicitly now. Did they, did they no mention that one thing that stuck in my mind, and if, if it's clear or not, but did they no mention it was getting filmed on like a video recorder and like motion pictures? So it was like probably like um, cine film. Yeah. So it's no maybe electronic in that sense, or was yeah. it? Well, Larry Warren said it that it was there was an old uh, early type of uh, video camera, and there were we know that research has been undertaken we know that they did exist that was entirely possible and of course the americans were better at technology than the uk at that time they're usually a bit ahead of us mm -hmm. uh, like in video records and things like that they were having them and color tv came in a lot early in the 50s and 60s but not until the 70s in the uk that kind of thing so america usually had a lead uh, but essentially warren had said that there were two types of cameras cinefilm and um uh, and early video uh, whereas Adrian Bestins just says basically it, it's, it's moving images. It, yeah. It's it's not a still camera. It's it's he just said it's being filmed, uh, and that's what he meant. Uh, Mike Verano just says motion picture footage. But uh, when you put those counts all together, it's very compelling, especially with Holt's admission uh, to Ray Boucher that that there was footage, moving footage of this second landing, and of course that's probably one of the reasons why this has been so controversial because. Colonel Holt was also present, I believe, at that second landing, and yet he's denied ever being present. He denied that Colonel Williams was involved at all, never went to the field. And yet here we have got effectively three, a, a, an officer and two airmen, basically saying contradictory to that in their testimony. And why should they be disbelieved? Uh, you know, base, surely there's, there has to be a debate about this, but basically they're saying that, Colonel Holt was there, and that he was involved as well, uh, and that Holt has denied all this. But mm. when you see that admission in 1985, I think he's putting himself there as well. That's, I mean, in in regards to that as well, I mean, that's that did stick in my mind. And then after the initial um, story, I mean, that came through that area, it was it was just totally washed over. And you never, well, you never heard much yet until. Well, well, it was, it, it wasn't so much washed over. It was, it was, it, it, was, it, was it was, it was deliberately, um, I think, uh, uh, covered up yeah. uh, because of its significance. Sure. I mean, you've got, you've got to understand that. Would the Americans in 1980 want to admit that the base commander of 12,000 personnel at the top strike base in Europe uh, was in a communication with some kind of entity mm. in a field? Um, then the answer, and it was filmed, then the answer is probably no, because that might be a bit of a game changer for the subject. And I think that's really uh, why Colonel Holt was very, very reluctant when I was collaborating with him for seven years to ever talk about Adrian Bustinza because he was a linking character with Sergeant Bustinza mm -hmm. and he was like, he kept a very low profile, didn't really say much, but Holt would just say, no, Colonel Williams wasn't there, no, it's all rubbish, Ali talk of aliens is rubbish. But now when you put it in context with the admission that I found from Ray Boucher, what uh, Bustinza corroborated Warren's account, uh, Captain Mike Verano saying I took the film, it was motion picture footage, then it all ties in and 
they didn't want to talk about it because it was such an important thing had they have done so that it would have been viral it would have then gone on on the six o'clock news and they they were doing their damnedest to to play down the incident and some of my research and talking to military witnesses about it is that there was huge number of people milling around that this was not uh, an organized sightings the the way documentaries put it is that is, is there were maybe just two events two different nights well they concentrate on what's called the holt memorandum which is this very important document written by the then lieutenant colonel holt the deputy base commander where he basically said in that three paragraph which was just a, a teaser to the ministry of defense according to holt but in the first paragraph it says that there'd been a, a triangular craft found of unknown origin uh, on what was effectively the first night, which is this uh, Sergeant Pennison um, and John Burroughs uh, incident we're, we're familiar with. And then two nights later, it's back, it's back, the UFO's back. He, uh, Colonel Holt, well, Lieutenant Colonel Holt at the time, leads a group, a small number, in, into the forest, uh, and they see multiple UFOs. So that was that. Now, that document was never supposed to be released into the public domain. Hmm. It came out indirectly in uh, early 1983 and then really went uh, public in terms of the wider world in October 1983 with the big News of the World headline, tabloid newspaper, it's official, it, uh, it's official, UFO lands in Suffolk. And so that's announced it to a world audience, as it were. And it had part of the memorandum in, in, the, in the body of the article, the, the, the head, headline article. And so that memo is undoubtedly one of the most famous ufo documents in history and uh, i would think it's in the top five or top ten because it's written by someone of such a high rank who's admitted to seeing multiple ufos himself well when that came out the us air force i think were unprepared for it to come out but when it did they couldn't deny that it was on us air force headed notepaper as it were or letterhead uh, so they had to admit that, yes there were two incidents in the forest bear in mind that they denied it for almost three years continuously yeah. denied any kind of press inquiry or private inquiry they denied everything and then suddenly this document surfaces yes there are two incidents now <clears throat> now if you think about it um i think that's really where the case lies i think the drawbridge was pulled up after those two incidents because unless you had a piece of paper proving that other incidents had taken place and of which we don't have any other pieces of paper as far as i'm aware but they may exist i don't know but i don't know of any if we did then unless you've got that proof they're just going to say there's only two incidents and they talk of anything else any other landings that's it. We'll just poo-poo. It will now just stick to the two. And that's basically what's happened. Mm -hmm. And the way that the media, who I think are complicit at high level or have been at high level, mm -hmm. not people on the ground, but at a high level, decisions have been taken at high level in the media with governments, I think, to downplay this case. When those decisions were made, they were made to basically cover up any talk of any other kind of incident. And that's why the Reynolds and Forest case is very unusual because it's unusual that three of your four principal witnesses 
from the effectively that's in the whole memorandum, they've become principal researchers in their own right and become very prominent in all the documentaries. Mm -hmm. But what it's led to is the narrative of the case being, I think, quite deliberately controlled in the sense of when these documentaries are made, of which there's been over 50 odd uh, English speaking worldwide documentaries about mm -hmm. Ramsar, they're all telling basically the same story. They just basically stick to what's in the memorandum. Yeah. And very few people get a look in. And one of the things I've wanted to do with my research is that I've talked to lots of other people who were involved, but their stories don't get told. And that strikes me as being wrong. And as I've alluded to in the book and pointed out that there's a lot of new evidence from people, new events. Sergeant Adrian Bustinza, when he talked to me in that four and a half hour transatlantic call, he told me about an incident that is recorded nowhere. It was totally new as I was speaking to him. And he said that whilst Colonel Holt was uh, at the staging area, he was then told to take a team out of about 20 people, 20 airmen, and do a line search. You know, like you see when you see the police doing a field search and they just walk forward in a single line or looking down yeah. at the ground, looking for bits of evidence or whatever. That's effectively what they did in the forest. Well, nobody's ever talked about this. So this is an entirely new event. And it's while Holt is back. So this is before Holt gets involved. So this is an entirely new event. And I was totally unprepared for it. He, and he talks about it. And not only do they go in the forest spaced out every 20 meters or so in a long line. But at one point they start seeing UFOs. Initially one UFO is seen whizzing around under the canopy of the trees, a sphere, a white sphere. And then a few minutes later, there is multiple seven or eight objects whizzing around spheres. Uh, uh, so this is an entirely new incident. So surely these kind of incidents deserve to have a voice and be told on camera like all the others. Yeah. But unless the narrative can be changed, which is what my book is trying to do, the TV companies are just not going to help you here. Mm. They want to stick to this existing narrative because it's nice and safe. But I really want to try to change that and get a lot more people involved. Steve Longero is another guy I spoke to. Steve Longero came forward to me. He was an airman at the time. And he came to me out of the blue and basically said, I'm so fed up of all the grief that this Larry Warren is getting, uh, saying he wasn't there. Well, I knew he was there. And I said, well, how do you know he was there? He says, well, I did my basic training with him. And when I was in the forest, because uh, he'd arrived within a couple of days of Warren, he said, when I got into the forest, I saw Larry Warren. I was quite pleased to see him. I didn't know him very well, but he was on my training course. So you know him, you know his name. Like I was in the Air Force, I was like with 47 others. I knew all the names at that time. I didn't mean that I knew them well or we were best pals, but you you were marching with them, doing all your classes together, so you knew them. And he said, I was on the same training course, and he said, when I saw Larry Warren at the staging area, I was pleased because I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? Mm -hmm. And I want to see a recognised face, and I'm new to the base, and I'm, I'm in the lowest of the low in terms of rank. So he's keeping his head down, thinking, what's going on? And he sees Warren. So he's pleased to see someone that he can recognise, who can understand what he's going through. So that's a great memory trigger. So again, it's another person. But the thing is, with Steve Langero, it wasn't just that aspect that was interesting. He said, no, we, we'd had rumours for many years that um, 
uh, beams had been shone down into the nuclear weapon storage area by UFO, shining beams into the nuclear hot row and kind of like doing a, gr a, a grid search of the hot row. But we didn't have a name. We didn't have a name. Well, uh, when I spoke to Steve Longero out of the blue, he, he says I was on the site walking around inside a young airman with an experienced airman. He was the newest of the new walking around with an experienced airman and he sees a UFO over the weapon storage area or close to the weapon storage area that then shines a beam down into the nuclear bunkers and it does this. A pendulum pattern all the way down, all the way down the hot row as if it's scanning what's in those bunkers, in the underground bunkers. And he says akin to a search. So now we have a direct witness testimony, first person testimony. That's brilliant. But then he said, when the UFO then moved off towards Rendlesham Forest, he, uh, there was all panic going on in the forest, and they wanted people going out into the forest because they didn't know what they were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And he said, because I was new, and I was like an extra person on shift inside the weapon storage area walking around with an experienced airman, he said they took me from that, and I was then put into the back of a truck and taken out to the forest, and he's thinking, what's going on? He gets out in the forest. This is where he sees Larry Warren. And he says, when we're out in the forest, he is taken to the initial first night landing site. So it infers it's at least two nights later. Mm -hmm. And he then, along with 10 or 15 others, see multiple UFOs themselves. So this is two new events. Mm -hmm. So the first one, so it, it was like, this testimony should be out there. But unless we can get this onto a wider audience, and get the TV interested to finally admit that the narrative is not quite as convenient as they would want it to be, then then it's not going to change. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with the book is to try to say, look, there's lots more accounts, lots more people involved, and you really uh, deserve, they deserve to have a voice and be on the, on the TV as well to change this narrative. Even some of the basic stuff where you, where you had, like the, the first kind of narrative that was getting played, if you had a UFO sighting, which is it happened just by happen chance, why would you set up light holes in the in the forest and stuff like that? <laughs> Absolutely, and, and you know what I mean, and it's like the following night. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, but I mean, we're talking, and this is what make elevates the Rendlesham case to arguably the most important case in history after Roswell. That's how most people refer it to it now, mm -hmm. because it's multiple events over consecutive days. Well. When you think of nearly all the other sightings, you're usually talking about one event on one day, um, sometimes occasionally a couple of days, but not consecutive days. Well, when you break it down, I've got 17 different incidents happening over a three to four day period involving multiple people, not just Holt, Penniston and Burroughs. So you're talking multiple people. It's always been alluded to that there were literally hundreds of people involved, not just um, US Air Force Security Police. I'm sure that there were other trades like uh, crew technicians uh, uh, who worked on aircraft, uh, uh, firemen, I think may have got involved, but their testimonies, nobody's coming forward, but I think they're still out there mm -hmm. and they're still young enough to be able to come forward. So I hope that if my book takes off, which I hope it does, um, that more people will be encouraged to approach me so I can interview them. Um, because this is not some kind of little event. This is a huge event over several successive days. And I think we're, we're really only scratched the tip of an iceberg uh, for a long time. Uh, it was always said that 
um, no, the, the, the issue was just really just the, the, the US Air Force police that were involved. Well, we have now testimony from different people. Uh, there was a guy who, who uh, Georgina Bruna I spoke to called Tony Brisciano, who was uh, in charge of the fueling vehicles. So he's not a police. He was like uh, what was called a motor pool. And he would open up the pumps so there's police vehicles could fill up and he remembers an incident where and it's the only time in his career he gets a phone call give him a direct order open up the, the pumps now uh, for the police to come uh, there's a convoy of vehicles coming down this is an emergency and he's very specific this is an emergency and in his all his career in the air force he never had that scenario again so this kind of hints at um how serious this was and then there's a there's a, an RAF guy called Gary Baker who'd, who'd gone public with some testimony to Graham Birdsley in UFO magazine I tracked him down on social media spoke to him and uh, great guy and he said that he was in a briefing with two squadrons of of effectively in simple terms radar operators hmm. I know he'll hate me for saying that but in simple terms it was radar operators who were then briefed and he names the people that briefed them about this incident uh, that had taken UFO incident that had taken place at Bentwaters and Woodbridge. So we're, we're certainly not talking about something that was little in content. There were far greater um, number of agencies involved who became aware of this incident, but it's all been kind of like swept under the carpet. Uh, I suspect that there's still some uh, British police officers uh, that have got information that have never come forward. And I mean, British Bobbies, because Adrian Bustinza mentions Bobbies, Larry Warren mentioned Bobbies, or one or two other people mentioned Bobbies uh, that were like joint roadblocks between British police and the US Air Force Security Police just outside on the public road in the days in the aftermath. But the... the the guy who did the CNN documentary, a guy called Chuck DeCaro, who's their lead investigative journalist, uh, he, he said that at one point he had an interview arranged with a British police officer about something that he'd seen, mm -hmm. which you assume is UFO-related. And then at the last minute, this, this policeman pulls out and he never did find out why. It was as if somebody maybe got to him and said, don't do it, because the general response is no police are involved at all. But, you know... There's, there's, there's even in, in the book, uh, I have an audio copy of the the Holt audio tape. And at one point, Chuck DeCaro, uh, in his in the research notes from uh, from Ray Boucher, it included this single page of, of a transcript page of Holt's famous audio, 18-minute audio. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, there is a reference to uh, what's written in, and it's probably written by uh, by Chuck DeCaro himself. In bracket, it says Bieber. Now, it doesn't make any sense ordinarily, but the British vehicles, police vehicles at that side time went Bieber, Bieber, emergency siren. Yeah. After it sounds. But the Americans went woo, 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 woo. If you think of a Y U five O and all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So there was a distinct change. And it's on there, it's on the audio. You can hear what sounds like a siren, but it's not, and it's Bieber. And Holt had denied that British police there, but Adrian Stinzer, when I spoke to him, he's quite specific. He says, yeah, Captain Verano was talking to them, and it turned up and, and told them to turn off the, the siren or, or the, the, the moving light, the single emergency light at the top. So they were there in some capacity, but we don't know about that. 
It's not just that they turn up like they're supposed to and there's nothing going on and they go away having seen nothing. No, there's clearly a discrepancy there. So I do think that there are some police officers out there and I would love them after all of this time and they now must be very elderly that if they're still able uh, to come forward, to approach me. And that's what the book's about, trying to get people to come forward because I still think there's a lot more information. But we are running against the clock now because people are now getting in the 70s and 80s and, and, and probably older if, you, if, you, if you're an ex-policeman at that time. So, uh, you know, I still think there's a lot of information to come out. Yeah, but day to day it is getting more of a subject that you can talk about. Uh, it's, still, it's still got stigma, I mean, but you can talk Absolutely, about... Absolutely, but it's, it is receding. But it's we still getting, have... It is receding. I mean, so that's um, hopefully the a bit of kind of glint and sunlight that comes out of that. You maybe get more people coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. I hope so. In regards to the um, the event overall, do you, do you think at some level that it was an organised event or it happened and then they kind of pulled it together to try and record as much as they could? Uh, it's a, it's a, that's a really good question. And I think the honest answer is I don't know. Uh, isn't a curious quote that a policeman who, who was involved, he, he, he wrote this in a letter uh, to a, a UK researcher and he said, you know, I kind of like the Americans, but, you know, I was kind of intrigued that they brought light holes as if it was going to come back. And he actually said that. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, that alludes to that there were a series of nights and, and, you know, why would they? But here's something that's in the book that's actually incorrect in the book, but I didn't know at the time. And that's originally in my conclusion, I listed 18 sightings, not 17 different events and that's because since the book's been released uh, the chapter on uh, chapter 20 in the book is called uh, James Stewart's story and he was a crew chief who was a, basically a technician who repaired aircraft and he came out with this sensational tale and he thought it was December of 1980 and with all the things that happened in his story which I'll happily talk about he was uh, basically saying it, it must have been a part of that but since the book came out, he contacted me and he said, I've been checking my uh, my evaluation records, you know, you, you, you know, your personal evaluations every year. And he says, I was shipped out on the, I think it was the 6th of January, 1980. So it couldn't have been December, 1980. It's actually December. And he thinks it's Christmas, Boxing Night into Christmas Day, uh, 26th and 27th on 1979. But his incident is incredible. So whilst he's not part of the main December 1980 sightings, and I have no reason to disbelieve, and I've seen his service records, he is who he says he is, I've talked to him on video, I've interacted with him, I've got his documents, copies of his documents. He is bona fide, uh, in my opinion. And yet his account, whether it's in this, uh, December 1980, which it's not, it's now December 1979, he's incredible because what he basically says is that he's close, he's working on a phantom jet. There are th apparently just three phantom jets left on the base. Mm -hmm. And he's at RAF Woodbridge working on one and he's at the closest um, point where, his, where he's working on the aircraft, this F-4 Phantom, which is the closest point he can be to um, the East Gate the famous Eastgate that we're familiar with in the story uh, at Darif Woodbridge. And he's, he's working underneath fixing this phantom jet. Uh, 
and they have to be out by January 1980, it turns out now, not 1981. So anyway, he's underneath, and then he feels a sugar from above him. He's like by the bomb bear out underneath, and there's a ladder going up to the pilot's cockpit, and then he feels a shudder as if, as if something is moving on the top. And he's thinking, oh, and he also hears a, as if it's something is scraped down something. See, so client comes out, thinks, what the hell's that? Climbs up to the top of the ladder, and he sees that the cockpit, there are three scratches, like claw marks, scratched into the canopy of what was a new canopy on this F4 Phantom. And he then, at the, by the same time he's done that, he then feels a shudder. This is the middle of the night, by the way, so it's dark. Mm. Uh, he, he then feels another shudder as if something has jumped from the tail section of the plane down to the ground. And as he looks, he can see that there are some kind of like footprints along the spine of the aircraft, but he can't make them out. It's in the dew, as it were, the, 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 the moisture. But something has jumped down and he can't see anything, but he sees the 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 nearby bushes all rustling as if something is going through. But you don't see at any point whatever it was, but something is heading out towards the perimeter fence, which was very close to his location. And he says, I see it, something is scurrying through, and then it's it suddenly on the other side of the fence line. So whether there's a hole being put into it, I don't know, but it's one minute it's on the inside and then it's on the outside. And it's heading, believe it or not, towards a clump of trees where a UFO he sees descending descending down into this clump of trees and this whatever it is is scurrying towards it at the same time he then hears shots fired by the security policeman at the east gate who is less than 50 meters away mm-hmm. and so he, he, he does what anybody would do he, he hits the deck what the hell's going on and then he hears some words shouted by the policeman who doesn't know, like, get away, get away, something like that. And then something else is scurrying through the bushes towards where this UFO is seen to descend into a clump of trees and and then out of sight. So you've got two things scurrying through the bushes that he can't see, Hmm. shots fired, and then this UFO landing in this clump of trees. And then, because of the shots fired, his boss must have heard the shots and then turns up in what was called the expediter vehicle. Uh, and, and they basically said, get in. Uh, we thought you'd been abducted. You're the fourth or the fifth, something like that. This comment is like, what? what the hell's going on? Now, this there's no reason to disbelieve this guy. It's a sensational account, but there's just no reason for me to doubt him. He's a bona fide person. I don't think he's doing it for publicity. What's he going to gain? He's not going to gain anything other than ridicule uh, by coming forward or potential ridicule. So anyway, he's come forward, I believe what he said, but he's now saying that this is December 79. Well, you think about it, when you then say about, are they going to come back next Christmas? It puts that question into context, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. um, would they come back at Christmas 1980? Well, they did because they were there in Christmas 1979. You see what I mean? So I'm now appealing for other information from anybody who was at the bases. Uh, 79 to 80, you may have information about this alleged 1979 incident, but I see no reason why you'd lie, but it's a sensational account, whichever year it was, and we're now saying it's now December 79, but it's a sensational case, and he has just come out of the woodwork, but other people must still be around who are familiar 
with things that were going on because it alludes to to who was the security uh, police officer who shot, uh, what happened to him, what was his name, um, were there other um, people involved from the technician side uh, who were aware of what had happened to um, James Stewart? Mm-hmm. Uh, is 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 his boss still alive? That kind of thing. It'd be nice to have some corroboration to that story, but I've no reason to disbelieve James, and uh, he's a very credible witness when you talk to him. The, the thing would be, uh, it was totally intriguing and interesting, like go, like going back the year before. But the the thing it got me for the the night in question before, um, even the, the Larry Lorne part of the story and stuff was the was was the light holes to start off with. That was one thing, and then well, the bit of the Larry Laurie Sloan actually, which was um, the main part where he said about the cameras. So with the with the having the two different cameras there, that kind of I, I took that the first time I heard that story, which was right back in the day, uh, probably the start when it came out, and then years after that, it kind of as I say, they got washed away. Um, where he said there was two different cameras there, as I said, like oh. one like a kind of VHS type camera, I'll call it that, it might yeah. not be VHS in the day. Another one, like a motion kind of picture camera. Yeah, silly so film. That that because the fact that potentially that that to me looked like um, it was premeditated to the fact that they've maybe done it before because it could have affected the electronics in the camera. It could have done this, done that. So well, this is the the mo that they do it and and they, they try it this way. They try and record something, and that with the light holes, I kind of thought there's there's some type of premeditation in that. Yeah, no, I agree. I tend to think that it's probably more localised in the sense of if an event occurs, what we say is the accepted first night, the 25th into the 26th, so the early hours of the 26th and there's this landed craft, then that, in a sense, was all in the dark. And then we now know that there was an event in between, which we can talk about, which is sensational on its own. Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin, that story has never been told publicly until this book. Uh, and then, uh, so that was this now the second night, the 26th into the 27th, and then the whole night is generally regarded as the 27th into the 28th. And we're now saying, based on Adrian Mustins' testimony, that he seems to think this is another night. It could well be the second consecutive night for him. So that would be the 28th into the 29th. Mm-hmm. So we have potentially four nights of activity. Well, if there's an event that's occurred on the first night, and then there's another account occurred on the second night with Bonnie Tamplin, there maybe is a, 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 a suggestion that they might come back on the third night. And that's maybe why the cameras were there then, just in case. So it may well be not something that was long-term planned, although this now December 79 connotation throws that up in the air, but it may well have just been uh, as a result of what had happened on the first two nights. They wanted to try to get footage of it if it came back on the third night. But the odds of it, been, you know, it still sounds like there's an air, uh, some premeditation. And Larry Warren actually always said that he felt that there was a premeditated event there. Yeah, I think I think where the what he described and how it and how it kind of came in and materialised in that area where they were filming that as well. You know what I mean? So, um, but I, it's, it's 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 totally interesting. You know what I mean? So. I, I'm looking forward to kind of um, churning through the book and and um, as I say, them. I'm away. I'm away to France and uh, in a, a short space of time. So we'll be. I'll be over there. And I'll, as I said, I'll get some pictures. Of, uh, nice locations. Hopefully, sunny weather and stuff like that. And well, let me know what you think. Yeah. 
No, listen, I, I definitely will. And uh, I'll, I'll put a review on the um, website. I'll, I'll post the end of the as well. But I, I wouldn't mind kind of discussing some other stuff in regards to... Um, yeah, even anything if, you want. So you want. in regards to um, disclosure, now, you know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking disclosure. I mean, you've been involved in disclosure for a, a good number of years. It's not just an American thing. You know what I mean? But people see it as an American thing because it's it's... It's it's kind of happening within the government in America now. You know what I mean? So that's where kind of people, when they talk about it and the UFO food you know, disclosure, I think it's kind of starting there. But it's not. You know, it's you've been involved in it for a good number of years. But with um, what's happening now in America, um, where do you kind of see this going? You know, what I mean, it's like obviously now you've had the legislation that's came out um, where it's reportable now and things like that, and it's like slowly kind of chipping away. Internally, as you can see, now you've got the whistle whistleblower kind of amendment that's that's kind of came in. Um, where where do you think this is going to go? Well, I'd be very surprised now if it doesn't end up in in witness congressional hearings. Uh, if you remember, in May of twenty twenty two, they had a, like an intelligence brief in congressional hearing, and that was very disappointing because basically the two people that were put up didn't do a very good job and didn't seem to be very it's well informed. Three, I think it was. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was very underwhelming. But mm. what we know now, because of the whistleblower legislation, I know of uh, two people who've now given testimony privately to the RO office, the Old Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, this new office created under the legislation. And that's Robert Salas. He's given his testimony about the Maelstrom uh, 1967 nuclear missile shutdowns. His 10 missiles went offline. And also Bob Jacobs, who was involved in the Big Sur in 64, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, a, a UFO um, basically attacking a, a, a dummy rocket and disabling it and throwing it out of orbit. Uh, and so I know those two people have given their testimony. Now, I don't think either of those people, knowing them as personally as I do, would have given that testimony if it was just going to be all swept under the carpet. Mm -hmm. I don't know this, but I'm pretty sure sure that they're, they're both very prominent people and forthright people. They would, I'm sure, have asked the question, well, if I do this, what's going to happen to my testimony? Mm -hmm. And I suspect that they'll have been told that there will be some witness congressional hearings, uh, which would potentially be a game changer. Uh, and if you think about it, that's probably why the whistleblower amendment came in, because it basically said somebody who's been and worked on a, uh, an active uh, or secret UFO program going back decades can now come forward either to the RO office or to the Senate congressional or the, uh, the uh, you know, congressional senators and congressmen. Mm -hmm. um, women, uh, they can come forward uh, safe in the knowledge that it's not going to risk them their pensions and career which was always the big fear factor yeah. attached to the stigma so I think there's only there's no point in creating that mechanism, mechanism uh, if if uh, to then disappoint people who come forward people are only going to come forward if their story is going to come out and that uh, like Robert Salas you know, he's been waiting decades to tell his story mm -hmm. I was with Robert briefing the uh, Brazilian Senate in June of 2022. And we, we obviously spent some time together. And he, and he said when he briefed the Brazilian Senate, he's looking forward to the day when he can brief uh, his own country. And he, he'd been denied that opportunity. Well, now he's done it. 
uh, albeit in a private session, but I suspect that's just so that they can evaluate his story and that when congressional hearings, public hearings are, are uh, created, which I think will be within the next 18 months, then there'll be a whole list of very senior people going on the record about what they were involved in. And I think that because they're going to be public hearings and that the mainstream press will be there, and this time they're not going to hear about poster from the intelligence service and dodgy little videos for one second that they yeah. can get to play. They're going to hear about nuclear missiles being shut down. Well, we know in the UFO subject that this has been around for decades. Yeah. But to the average person, especially in America, especially around the world, 95% of people just don't have any clue about the level of uh, evidence in the subject. And so that is going to be like, whoa. And you can see, in a sense, that the recent Chinese uh, spy balloon saga mm -hmm. uh, plays a part in, in if the press really do hatch onto something, they will be all over the president like a rash. They were all over him and there were briefings going on at the White House. And yeah. then President Biden was then forced to make a comment about these the balloon and these other three objects. Well, that gives you an indication of what would happen if the press really did start delving into the subject on you know on mass doing a proper job that they should have been doing for 50 odd years yeah. but anyway better late than never but if they do it when they hear about first person's uh testimony and and can you imagine pilots giving testimony about chasing things and shooting at them and things like that mm -hmm. uh, and being you know uh, there's there's probably other cases that people are still alive where they could give testimony I'm thinking of one, and I don't know if he's going to be called as a witness, but he, uh, the, the Mansfield, Ohio, 1973, Ohio, Ohio, uh, the uh, the coin incident, the the helicopter that was engulfed in a green light and then seen on the ground to be pulled up like in a tractor beam towards mm -hmm. a UFO that was above it. it. They totally lost control. He was with three other military people one of the most credible cases well i think he's still around uh, and uh, you know if people hear those accounts i remember being at the citizens hearings as a, a speaking on behalf of police officers worldwide in uh, the national press club in uh, in april may the end of april early may 2013 and we were giving testimony before a mock congressional hearing and it was one former senator and five congressmen and women and one of the people that was there as a witness was a guy called Colonel Oscar Santa Maria and he was a, a, a Peruvian military pilot and he gave first-hand testimony through interpreters obviously through translation uh, of, of chasing a UFO being ordered to fire at it, firing at it and then this UFO just playing fun games with him yeah. and he couldn't get anywhere near it and when you saw the congressmen and women and the senator, their visible look was like their jaws were on the floor. And I think that that potential is really there for the press and the public to see for the first time in a mass televised event, uh, for the first time in history on the subject uh, in the near future. And I think that when that happens, I think people will be, really? Mouth ajar, mouth mouth wide, and I think it could have huge um, impact in terms of getting the press on board and uh, the public clamouring for the truth in a way that they've never really believed before.
It's funny with the, the, the public the now because all this going on in the sidelines, which has been going on since, well, it's been, it's been on forever. You know what I mean, but in regards to more recent times than 2017 and then thereafter, all this going on, all these things going on in America. I mean, people are just oblivious to it still. I mean, oh, I, absolutely. Yeah, but, people, but, I, I didn't get me wrong. It's people are, are starting to come round to it. You know what I mean, but there's still lots of people out there are just totally oblivious to what's going on. Yeah. Absolutely, and that, and and that needs to change. And I think that's one of the mechanisms that could change it literally overnight. Mm-hmm. Because once the word got out, the press would be all over it. I think, and once they realised that this was first-hand testimony of incredible things uh, going back donkey's years, then I think the press would not let it go. Yeah, and I don't think Scott Bray is going to be able to come out this time and say, "Oh, there's, there's it's just uh, didn't, didn't look at these things. It's just Chinese drones. Although they're, yeah. they're time traveling Chinese drones, that can go back seventy years." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was it was very disappointing, and and that they kind of denied when one of the senators, I think it was Senator Gallagher, asked a question to one of them and said, "Are you aware of the nuclear missile shutdowns?" And I went, "No." Well, I didn't believe that for a minute. Do you? And every UFO book that you'd ever read about the history of the subject would mention nuclear missiles shut down. So I don't think people were being totally upfront and honest. I kind of thought they'd have been better prepped, to be honest, because obviously they'd had a lot of hearings um, beforehand. Um, you know, like, like Chris Mellon and Lil Zonder, they were briefing them constantly. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, it was it was very disappointing, but it's still an important uh, historical marker mm-hmm. because it, it, again it's a congressional hearing that they hadn't held for fifty odd years, or well, since the sixties. Uh, so it was important as an historical anecdote, but I think the real uh, thing to come is we, I think we are going to get um, hearings, public hearings, and and that's why people are now being asked to give their testimony and. Who knows what other people have been approached? I only know of those two, but there's probably others that have already been uh, approached uh, or will be approached, and I think that their testimony is just as valid. I'd, I'd like to see people like Steve Longero and Adrian Bustinza give their account, as mm. well as the likes of uh, other Rendlesham witnesses. Cool, uh, I think, I, I, I think you know, there's a lot of people should get get the opportunity, but when it comes out, as and when and if there is. Uh, proper public hearings. I think that's a potential crossover disclosure point. We we can't be far away from it. We're certainly closer to a form of disclosure than we've ever been in my lifetime. And, you know, it's tantalisingly close. And I think personally that something will happen within the next three years. Uh, I, know you, over the edge. I know you can see within the American government a bit of, it looks like there's a bit of pushback with the, um, the Air Force in regards to what's been happening and stuff like that. and uh, But within that as well, I mean, it's, do do you think, I'm trying to get a word this, I mean, so disclosure's kind of getting pushed out a bit now, right? So it's getting pushed out by some part of the government in, in some auspice, and then there's other, there's kind of some part no one that they come out, right? Absolutely. Do you, do you think there's some reason why it has been getting pushed out? Is it maybe some reason why we're either going to find out something and it's a case of, like, we need to let these people know this before this happens, or that's what kind of my thought, any kind of mindset is on it. I mean, what's, what's your kind of mindset now? Or you think it's just a, a process that's just happened and it's just basically came to the... It's just overboiled and now it's just coming out? Uh, I 
suspect, and this is purely my private opinion, mm -hmm. that something behind the scenes is known at the highest levels uh, that is pushing forward this agenda. I think something has either been found or information has been uh, conclusively proved that proves that there is a, some kind of present interaction going on. And uh, I think there is something driving what's going on now. Uh, and I think it's a step-by-step -step disclosure process. And, you know, uh, I, I, I personally think there is something that we're not aware of that's going on behind the scenes that is pushing this agenda. Have you have you heard of um, alleged some type of event in 2027? No. 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 Um, I, I, I think there's something historical that's that's come to the fore S something uh is pressing the buttons now uh i mean if you th if you think about bill nelson you know who's who's now the administrator for uh for nasa nasa for all these years never said anything about ufos mm -hmm. and then he comes into take office and basically he's saying no oh, we're going to do another nine month study and i've talked to the uh, quoting him he said i've talked to the pilots with regards to the Nimitz sighting and those kind of things, the sightings off the east and west coast that we talk about with the three US Navy videos, uh, and they saw something. So he's immediately given it credibility, and the fact that he's announced this nine-month research. Well, do we really think that at the end of that nine months he's going to say there's nothing to this? After what he's already said, it, it wouldn't kind of make sense to me. And then if you, you think about the likes of Avi Loeb, uh, uh, Gary Nolan, the, you know, Gary yeah. Nolan uh, is a is a, uh, I think it's Stanford uh, University top scientist who is nominated for a Nobel Prize. And, you know, why would he go public? You know, in the past, it was the death knell to your career. And Avi Loeb at Harvard, you know, with the Galileo Project, it was the death knell if you said you were interested in UFOs. You were just attacked and demolished by everybody. So the fact that now that there's a lot of mainstream scientists who are now getting involved strikes me that something's going on behind the scenes. And, and I think it's a more than a coincidence that these high-level people are now getting involved. I think I think some people are have been quietly told that something is driving the agenda. Totally. When when you listen to like Nolan, for example, where we the interviews that he does and what he states, and if you read between the lines of some of the stuff that he says, and potentially maybe knows, um, and that linked with maybe other people like you've got like Jim Semivan and you've got like um, John Ramirez and some of the stuff that the consciousness aspect here and the abduction aspect here and um, even linking into life and death aspect of it as well. It's it's hard enough to try and get people to believe there's nuts and bolts crafted there, let alone. It's a hugely complicated subject, so you have got to try to deal with one bit at a time, and, and I think that's really where we are now, because the, the term changing it from UFO to UAP, I still like UFO, but I can understand why the change, because if you were going to try to frame the a new open debate about the subject you'd have to do it by changing the title to uap uh, and 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 going down the line of air safety because everybody should acknowledge that if there are things flying around in the airspace and that 
they've already admitted in the 2021 uh, Navy report, uh, well, the task force report, they said there'd been 11 near misses uh, with the US Navy pilots. Now, so that means that there is a potential air safety. So I can well understand them reframing the, the dialogue, the discussion in that way to get it to try to receive the stigma. And I think it's working, but unfortunately, one of my big bugbears is the mainstream media and they are not doing their bit to jump on board. Mm -hmm. They are dragging their heels, especially, uh, well, there has been more coverage in the United States, there's obviously more going on, but even so, they the momentum that was building up towards the release of the 2021 report hasn't transpired. It's not being followed up in America. And anything, I mean, there were one or two reports in the UK, in the media and TV in 2021, in the little build-up to that report. But since then, there's not really been anything uh, in the UK. And so the UK uh, are totally out of sync on this subject. And all I can say is I'll be trying to approach them through my book uh, just to say, look, you need to pay attention. There's things going on. You think you've, you've not seen much attention as, at all in any um, UK TV programmes? It gets a, it gets a, a two-minute slot at the end of the news. You know what I mean, it's like, and here's the weather. You know I mean, that's it. It's like you've not get a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 uh, whilst I'm not really trying for the mainstream press yet, because mm-hmm. I'm just building up this process as I as I develop the feedback for the book and reviews and things like that. Uh, when I do start doing that, it'll be interesting to see how the press deal with it because there's so much new information uh, in the book that uh, that should be front page news in many, many accounts. I mean, the, the story of Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin has never been told. And that, uh, and cutting a long story short, I'll just say, you know, I've got first person testimony uh, from one of the witnesses, Michael Stacey Smith, that says that this this lieutenant, a shift commander, one of the shift commanders, she was run off the road by a UFO on a public ro- rural country road, moving between areas Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Uh, she rolled the vehicle, she got out, and the UFO was hovering there, so she starts shooting at it. Well, that's on a British public road. Did you not think that's six o'clock news? Uh, it should be. So it'd be interesting to see what they say when I start to give them these, this information. Definitely, definitely. Listen, thanks very much for the, the conversation tonight. I'm going to ask you one more question before we kind of finish up. Um, what's your, what was your overall thoughts on uh, the binary code? Uh, it's it's dealt with in the book. Uh, there's a separate chapter on Jim Pennison because he undoubtedly was involved in the, the first night landing yeah. event. Um, but there are lots of other questions, uh, not least that Steve Longero says that on the night he was involved, and he's not quite sure which night it was date-wise, and I don't think we're ever going to establish it for certain now after all this time, but he says that when the UFO went uh, from shining the beam down into the weapon storage area, uh, he heard Sergeant Penniston over the radio, who was obviously watching it off the nuclear weapon storage area, uh, and he went into the forest. And, and in fact, when he went out into the forest, he was with Sergeant Penniston whilst this other event took place that he talks about. Well, Jim Penniston's never mentioned this. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, with regards to the actual binary records, as a former detective, when he announced the 30th anniversary conference at Woodbridge on December the 28th, or the 28th at Woodbridge in 2010, um, he told the audience who were very disbelieving why wait for 30 years he tried to say well uh, i thought it was crazy but it then turns out in 1994 he was hypnotized and he was one of the questions 
that he was asked under hypnosis is, can you see the minor records? Well, that to me makes it sound like he could have had an implanted false memory uh, mm -hmm. of the binary codes. Uh, in, in hard facts, it's a standalone account. I talked online in a com an online conversation with Gary Osborne, his co-author, uh, and here Gary Osborne admitted that it's a standalone account. Uh, there's nobody else that corroborates the binary code story. So are you going to change the world on one, the account of one person without any kind of corroboration? I think the answer is no. You'd have to deem it as being unproven. Uh, because it's just a standalone account. Um, uh, he made a lot of comments in the days afterwards, and I refer to it in various interviews in the book, uh, very inconsistent remarks. Uh, he'd, he'd say there were six pages, there were eight pages, there were 10 pages, there were 12 pages, it turns out 16 pages of binary code. Well, I think I'd know if you'd had such a, an amazing one-off event in your life, I think I'd know how many pages I wrote out, uh, but he didn't. And so that throws up kind of a red flag to me as a detective. I'm not saying it, it didn't happen. I'm just saying there's no corroboration and it should be regarded as unproven at this time. Thank you. Well, Gary, listen, thanks very much for your time. Um, You're welcome. Speaking to you and picking your brains and some stuff. I mean, but I'm looking forward to getting into the book and, um, Bring it hold of me and start reading again. <laughs> Actual reading. Uh, well, if you, if, you, if, you, if you can remember, sorry, if you can remember how, if you can remember how to read again, let me know what you think of it. <laughs> well, what well, 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 thing I will say, apart from I was um, picking up audiobooks, The good thing I do like about having a book book is the fact that when you when you when you get a book and you you're telling somebody about it and you've read it and they're like, oh, where is it? And you, you maybe give somebody a loan it or, or borrow it or something like that. You can't do that by an audiobook. <laughs> Correct. I appreciate that you give me the opportunity to speak. I'm always happy to uh, to talk to the media, and you're all doing your own part and doing a good job to, to promote the subject. So we're all in it trying to do the same thing. Definitely. Right, well, thanks very much, Gary, and uh, have a nice night. Thank you very much.